New York Native was launched as a newspaper for the gay community in Manhattan in December of 1980. I had been publishing a national gay literary magazine called Christopher Street since 1976, and New York Native was started with the hope of saving my struggling company by providing a regular source of local retail advertising. It ultimately worked and kept us in business until January 1997. I discuss all this in detail in my book, The Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Epidemic Cover-Up, which is fundamentally a history of New York Native's pioneering reporting on AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome. You could say that New York Native was in the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time because months after we started the paper, I heard rumors that gay men in Manhattan were coming down with a mysterious pneumonia. In May of 1981, I asked a doctor named Lawrence Mass to look into it and his story made its mark in history because it was essentially the first one ever published about what would become the so-called AIDS epidemic. The first mainstream media report about the AIDS epidemic appeared two months later in the New York Times. I picked up the Times on a hot night in July and was shaken by the story. The implications were horrifying for a community whose civil rights were still not firmly established. It didn't take me long to realize that my newspaper would be in the eye of the hurricane. I made the decision to cover every aspect of the epidemic. I assumed we could play a useful role in informing the community, and as a publisher, I recognized that my newspaper potentially had a tiger by the tail that would either make or break New York Native's reputation. A lot of people in the community opposed our focus on the emerging epidemic, but we stood our ground. In the early days of our coverage, our reporting was rather traditional, trusting, and straightforward. We tried to keep up with the emerging epidemiological and medical facts of the epidemic that were provided by government authorities. There were no immediate reasons to question the integrity of the CDC and NIH, so researchers at those institutions loved the fact that we were delivering their information to our community. But make no mistake, I was not unaware that we were then, and still are, a country that is systemically anti-gay or homophobic. In the following 40 years, I was to learn that systemic anti-gayness was a key to understanding virtually everything that went wrong with AIDS pseudoscience. You can't talk about AIDS fraud without talking about the subtleties of anti-gayness. It was only a few years before so-called AIDS broke out that the psychiatric arm of the medical community had to be dragged kicking and screaming away from classifying gay people as certifiable victims of mental illness. Unfortunately, that psychiatric nosological demonization of the gay community morphed into the epidemiological demonization of the gay community as a gerrymandered AIDS risk group. The foundation for an era of medical apartheid was being laid. In those dark and confusing first years of the epidemic, it was way too soon for us to realize that at the very same time that AIDS supposedly broke out in the gay community, another form of it was breaking out in the general population and would eventually be hidden behind the ridiculous euphemism of chronic fatigue syndrome. In those early years, no publication realized that by dutifully parroting everything the CDC said about AIDS, it was aiding and abetting the CDC in building a kind of epidemiological Potemkin village or a biomedical apartheid that artificially created a wall between AIDS and so-called chronic fatigue syndrome. If AIDS had been recognized as a spectrum, like the autism spectrum or the COVID-19 spectrum, this would never have happened. The one thing my newspaper is most famous for was my decision to put an essay by Larry Kramer on the front page of New York Native on March 14, 1983. It was essentially a call to arms about the growing seriousness of the epidemic. In those fog of war days, I was willing to publish any serious thoughts people had in the community about what was going on. 
the public was becoming increasingly alarmed about the mysterious epidemic. The threat of massive violence against the gay community was in the air. We were all wandering in the desert at a time when everyone expected the next shoe to drop. Kramer's piece is credited with launching the AIDS activist movement. At the time, that seemed like a good thing, but in many ways the results have been disastrous for science, the gay community, and the general public. In retrospect, publishing the Kramer piece helped create a Frankenstein. The damage Larry Kramer did to the gay community and public health is incalculable. In the years following the publication of the article, Kramer grew to hate New York natives' investigative reporting. Years after helping to make Kramer famous, he even said in the Village Voice that I should, quote, just shut up. He even defended the sociopathic and fraudulent science of Robert Gallo. I think historians should study Kramer in the context of some of the great demagogues in history. For a time, New York Native was useful to the CDC. That relationship came to a crashing halt when we began to look at the CDC more skeptically, the way all newspapers should always be looking at science in general, and AIDS in particular. James Curran, the scientist who headed the CDC's AIDS task force, eventually stopped taking my calls. Given the state of terror the gay community was in, it is not surprising that desperation led to a frightened and often sycophantic trust of the scientific establishment that was really not deserved. Many of the early people involved in the epidemiology of AIDS and the search for a cause at the CDC were not the brightest bulbs. Most were young and not seasoned epidemiologists. In retrospect, they were the gang that couldn't shoot straight. I write about them in my book, The Four Horsemen of the Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Apocalypse, how the bigotry and incompetence of four AIDS scientists at the CDC helped create the chronic fatigue syndrome disaster. I spent much of my time every day at New York Native talking to scientists and other journalists, always trying to find out what was going on behind the scenes and behind the headlines. What I was learning made me much more wary of automatically assuming every scientific pronouncement made by the AIDS establishment was true. While we covered the 1984 announcement by the Secretary of Health and Human Services that the cause of AIDS had officially been found, I was already aware that there were serious questions about the truthfulness and competence of retrovirologists like Robert Gallo and his colleagues at Harvard. From the start, there was a cloud over HTLV-3, the virus that became known as HIV, or the so-called AIDS virus. Around the time of the Heckler announcement, a doctor in Manhattan named Joe Sonneman gave me a book by Nicholas Wade and William Broad called Betrayers of the Truth, which opened my eyes to the fact that fraud is far more prevalent in science than most people realize. Also, the habit of looking away when other scientists cut corners. Robert Gallo was discussed in the book as one of those scientists who looked the other way when an incident of fraud was occurring. I'm proud to say that New York Native was the first to blow the whistle on Gallo and recognize that his laboratory was like an assembly line for scientific fraud. John Crutzen, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author, wrote the definitive book on Gallo's epic scientific fraud. But the New York Native was really the first paper to sound the alarm. In 1986, when Robert Gallo's lab claimed to have discovered another virus, HHV6, in both AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome patients, we were the first to make the case that his second so-called discovery undermined HIV. His first discovery, which was increasingly being recognized as a fake discovery, a theft of credit from the French researchers at the Pasteur Institute. One of the most underappreciated contributors to the New York Native was John Lauritsen. His first interview with Peter Duisberg was a game changer. He introduced the world to the molecular biologist's critical thinking that brilliantly challenged the HIV theory of AIDS. 
Duisberg was at the time a widely respected scientist whose work in the 70s and 80s was expected to win him a Nobel Prize. That is, until he pulled the rug out from under the emerging AIDS establishment. Unfortunately, he never used the word fraud, but when one reads Duisberg's closely argued critique of the HIV theory, one can't come to any other conclusion about the work of the Gallo and Fauci gang. It is a mistake to think of Duisberg only as a critic of the Gallo and Fauci gang. He was their persistent whistleblower. He was their scientific Woodward and Bernstein, their Cy Hirsch. Duisberg's critique was actually reporting a scientific and medical crime against humanity. Both Duisberg and Lauritsen also raised serious questions about the use of toxic treatments like AZT, which they argued were killing patients. Lauritsen's detailed analysis of the fraud involved in AZT research should be must-reading in schools of journalism. His work in New York Native is collected in his book, The AIDS War. One of the most overlooked things about the Duisberg involvement in HIV criticism was the fact that he was the first scientist to raise the possibility that HHV6, which Gallo was promoting as a critical cofactor in AIDS, was actually the real AIDS virus, not HIV. Unfortunately, Duisberg shot himself in the foot by coming up with his own AIDS paradigm that held that AIDS was not an infectious epidemic and was caused by recreational drugs. That paradigm was dead on arrival because not all people with so-called AIDS were drug users. The paradigm also struck us as a new form of scapegoating. But Duisberg was partly right, and in my book, Peter Duisberg and the Duisbergians, I argue that half a hero is better than none. For his noble efforts to warn the world about HIV, Duisberg's illustrious career was basically destroyed. He was lucky to still even have a job at a California university. Duisberg was an early victim of cancel culture and deplatforming in science and public health. What was increasingly obvious for Lauritsen and the rest of us at the newspaper was the disturbing fact that AIDS activists quickly became entrenched defenders of the HIV establishment at the same time they were holding rallies supposedly attacking the government. John Lauritsen often was shouted down by activists at events when he raised serious questions about AZT and other aspects of the official AIDS narrative. Everything about AIDS quickly became cult-like. AIDS activists became the protectors of the questionable mainstream line on AIDS causation and treatment. The gay community was taken for a ride. One of Peter Duisberg's arguments was that AIDS should have been breaking out in the general population if it was caused by a sexually transmitted virus. It shouldn't have been limited to the gay male community and few other so-called risk groups. And it should not have been so different in other countries like Africa. What Duisberg did inadvertently was help open our eyes to another part of the AIDS epidemic, namely chronic fatigue syndrome. An article by Ben Stein in an L.A. paper caught my eye in the mid-80s. He noticed that everyone in Hollywood was getting sick with a flu-like illness that never seemed to go away. My immediate response was to ask if this was the other face of the AIDS epidemic. Hillary Johnson seemed to be writing about the same unrecognized epidemic in her major piece on chronic fatigue syndrome that ran in 1986 in Rolling Stone. I contacted her after their publication and made the case that this was just the other face of the AIDS epidemic in the so-called general population. I thought the evidence of a connection between HHV6 chronic fatigue syndrome and AIDS was so overwhelming that I asked a member of my staff to focus her reporting on the relationship of chronic fatigue syndrome and AIDS. Nina Ostrom did that from 1988 until 1997 when we went out of business. 
I feel that part of the reason we ultimately went out of business was that we spilt the beans about the truth about chronic fatigue syndrome and HHV6. That threatened the HIV empire of fraud that Gallo Fauci and a vast well-funded HIV establishment had built their undeserved reputations on. The political and biomedical nightmare might never have occurred if a scientific abstract published in 1984 by Dr. Richard Du Bois and several other doctors about novel cases of immune abnormalities first seen in the Du Bois medical practice in Atlanta as early as 1980 had been recognized as the first clinical snapshot of the impending HHV6 AIDS spectrum pandemic. The description of the presumably heterosexual cases sounded suspiciously like AIDS, or at least a variation on the kinds of multisystemic problems seen in AIDS. They would turn out to be the first official sightings of chronic fatigue syndrome. If those 1980 cases in Atlanta, of all places, had been immediately acknowledged as the first heterosexual American cases of AIDS, and the first recognized manifestations of what would turn out to be the HHV6 spectrum catastrophe, rather than as a mysterious kind of chronic mono that eventually was disingenuously called, among other things, yuppie flu and chronic fatigue syndrome, everything would have been different. Absolutely everything. One of the greatest disasters in history might have been averted if the Centers for Disease Control had astutely recognized a year before the official gay-obsessed coinage of AIDS, that some of the first real cases in the HHV6 or AIDS spectrum pandemic occurred in a so-called non-risk normal general population group, folks otherwise known as the proverbial average Americans, right beneath the CDC's institutional nose in Atlanta. The actual patients zero of the AIDS-related HHV6 spectrum pandemic were probably just a short drive away from the CDC headquarters in Atlanta, at which the misguided HIV paradigm for AIDS was subsequently created and where the pseudoscience and pseudoepidemiology of HIV-AIDS was launched in all of its glory. From the beginning, the medical community was staring at the real manifestations of the AIDS epidemic in the general population and refusing to admit what was really going on. George Orwell said, to see what is beneath one's nose needs a constant struggle. You could also say that to ignore what is beneath one's nose requires a constant state of willful ignorance or systemic institutional bigotry. If the CDC had decided that the Du Bois 1980 Atlanta cases were suffering from some form of acquired immunodeficiency then, when the first so-called gay cases were recognized a year later in 1981, gays would never have been used politically to create the balkanized medical apartheid paradigm that HIV-AIDS turned out to be. The opportunity to build a virtual postmodern concentration camp of an HIV-AIDS paradigm would have evaporated overnight. Heterosexism would have had to look elsewhere for the medical and scientific opportunities to scapegoat and humiliate the gay community. Anthony Fauci has been willfully ignoring the link between AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome for almost four decades by treating CFS as though it is a mental illness, mostly in women. He has changed his tune recently, possibly because of increasing pressure from a chronic fatigue syndrome community that now recognizes that Fauci has been negligent at best and deceptive at worst. They are putting increasing pressure on the government to get to the bottom of chronic fatigue syndrome and end their suffering. Fauci is probably aware that a scientist named Bupesh Prusti at the University of Würzburg 
has been making steady progress in showing that HHV6 is the main issue, if not the only issue, in chronic fatigue syndrome. Fauci must be aware that the University of Würzburg issued this statement in 2018, quote, while HHV6 was long believed to have no negative impact on human health, scientists today increasingly suspect the virus of causing various diseases, such as multiple sclerosis or chronic fatigue syndrome. Recent studies have suggested that HHV6 might play a role in the pathogenesis of several diseases of the central nervous system, such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, or Alzheimer's. If that isn't a vindication of New York natives reporting on HHV6 and chronic fatigue syndrome, I don't know what is. Under pressure to say something about long-haul COVID, Fauci shifted gears recently and suggested that people who had lingering symptoms of COVID-19 might develop chronic fatigue syndrome. It will be ironic if Fauci is able to cover up his original mishandling of AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome with his mishandling of COVID-19. After New York Native went out of business in 1997, I continued covering the issues we had focused on in both fiction and nonfiction. My books were largely ignored until April 2020, when Robert F. Kennedy Jr. told his 600,000 followers about my book, Fauci, The Bernie Madoff of Science and the HIV Ponzi Scheme that Concealed the Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Epidemic. The book took off and was headed to the top of Amazon's bestseller list when Amazon suddenly removed it. They used the excuse of not publishing books about COVID with information not approved by the World Health Organization. This made no sense because my Fauci book was written before COVID-19 and had nothing to do with it. A month later, they put the book up for sale again, and it has been number one in its category for over a year. New York Native is mentioned in Kennedy's forthcoming biography of Fauci, which will hopefully find a new audience for the New York Native's groundbreaking reporting on AIDS, HHV6, and chronic fatigue syndrome. And I am happy to report that Nina Ostrom is about to reissue books with her reporting from New York Native.